Hello. Private credit is growing rapidly. In the last seven years, the global market has almost trebled to around $1.5 trillion. And that's still only a drop in the ocean compared to the global equity market, which is 50 times larger. But for this special podcast episode, I sat down with some of Fidelity's private credit team to discuss what role the asset class could play in traditional portfolios. I'm Richard Edgar, and this is Fidelity Answers. With me today are Fidelity's Head of Private Credit, Michael Curtis, and Portfolio Managers, Camille McLeod-Salmon and Mark Prizer. Well, thank you all for joining me. Hi, Richard. Hey, nice Richard. to be here. Now, there's been an awful lot of turmoil in markets generally so far this year. So what's the picture at the moment in private credit? Michael, how about you? We've seen a huge growth in the private credit market over the last 10 years plus. It's become an asset class that is taking an increasing share financing private equity and other uh, non-PE corporate borrowers. And, um, you know, what we what we see right now is where there has been significant increase in volatility over the last 12, 18 months, and the capital markets and banks aren't there uh, in a consistent way to support companies. We've seen private credit increasingly take over and provide that shock absorber or cushion to the financing markets. Well, I mean, what I'd add, I mean, I love the, I love the uh, quote, you know, don't wish to live in interesting times, but a little chaos is actually not such a bad thing. And I think that chaos is helping us a little bit as we look forward into the next decade, let's say, of private credit and direct lending. And the the change in outlook and the change in opportunity, I think, is significantly better and significantly different because we don't exactly know what the next 10 years look like, but we can tell you it looks different than the last 10. Traditionally, you know, historically, very low interest rates, low default rates, uh, you know, governments flooding the market with capital and any sign of distress, say, over COVID. And an industry that grew massively and raised bigger and bigger funds on the direct lending side. And because of that, had to invest more aggressively. So I think this next vintage has, in direct lending specifically, has one of the, an opportunity to be one of the best. Because we are looking at a more volatile market, bank pullback, a little bit more instability, I think, across direct lending given portfolios and given risk taken over the last five years. And so going forward, I think we have an, uh, all of us in direct lending have an opportunity to kind of reset and to think about what the next generation should look like. Camille, coming to you, because you look at the leverage loan market. So companies that typically have higher rates of leverage, but they also have higher interest rates that go with the risk that's associated with that. So how are the trends um, that we've heard so far? How are they playing out in your area of the market as well? Now we're seeing that conditions are more difficult for raising capital. You're seeing bank retention um, and you're seeing less issuance in the public market on the bond side, but also on the leveraged loan side. And there's a discussion at the moment about whether we're seeing a secular trend. So will leveraged loans survive this and will private credit essentially take over? And we're seeing much larger um, direct lending deals or club transactions to some of the the issuers that would typically tap the leverage loan space i think it's it's inter- it's an interesting debate um because i think if i don't know if you guys remember back in 2014 um there was a time when people wondered whether the leverage loan market would take over the bond market because um sponsored had issuers with issue with the non-call date um on uh on bonds as well i think there's probably a secular change but for direct lending or private credit to take over leverage loans completely, I think um, is probably 
probably a stretch. I think there'll be um, a change in that we see maybe leverage loan deals now with private credit sleeves. So where you saw uh, capital allocated and it being leveraged loans and bonds, you might see leveraged loans, bonds and private credit. And the reason for that is a private equity sponsor, you'll want access to as many capital uh, pots of capital as, as possible. And the, the fact that they've nurtured that private credit capital has been useful because they've been able to tap it, which is exactly what you want. Yeah, we were we were on a call the other day, if you remember, where we were asked, is it realistic to think that direct lending and private credit could ever replace or take up slack in the market right now? And the, the interesting there is that, yes, it's happening. People are raising bigger and bigger funds so they can access more capital and compete with the syndicated loan markets or even with the bond markets. But our market is still so much smaller than you know the equity market you mentioned, but I think also the fixed income market. I think it's 50 times bigger. So while we're growing a lot and there's still a lot of room for growth, it's still a fraction, a tiny sliver of the overall market. Camille, somebody um, said recently that the worst of deals were made during the best of times. So, you know, you've you've all been describing the, um, you know, the, the, the boom and the expansion in this in this market. But what does it mean? We've seen a zero interest rate environment. And so that's allowed companies to take on more debt um, because the cost of financing was so cheap. So now we're moving to a higher rate environment. Some of those cap structures now look unsustainable. And some of the terms as well, not just around leverage, have become looser as well as competition for financing has become easier at the time when we had um, lower rates. I think what we're what we're seeing now is that as that liquidity is drawn out of the system, actually we're seeing more lender friendly and we anticipate uh, more lender friendly vintages. So something akin to what we saw in 2012 kind of more um, lender friendly terms in terms of the tightness of documentation and provisions um, and also just better better spread or better compensation for the assets which we're seeing now as well in this vintage of deals. I think you know the animal spirits that we've seen on the on the credit side over the last several years you know we've seen it also on the private equity side where you know sponsors have been buying companies because of the cheap financing we talked about at very high multiples and you know, regardless, frankly, of of what sector they got into, what they bought, they've pretty successfully been able to exit those companies at higher multiples, as ultimately debts become cheaper and cheaper over the last several years. But the reset, which we're we're now going through, um, and and where capital has a cost, really separates out those weaker companies from from companies that have a reason to exist over the long term. And, and structural growth. And, you know, it's going to be an interesting environment over the next several years as, um, you know, private equity firms who've done deals at high valuations, um, you know, seek to look to ways to add value, exit those businesses when cost of capital is a lot higher. Because that's that's one thing that I feel like, I feel like, Michael, that um, you've, you've been very polite um, about it. You've talked about resets, you've talked about, um, you know, business not, models not being able to survive um, a more difficult in, environment. Um, are you worried about defaults? Because that's that's the big um, threat hanging over anybody who's, who's lending. The answer is yes. Uh, you know, defaults a reality of investing in credit. And, you know, we go from, you know, periods of low default to periods of higher default through the cycle. Um, we've had a very long period of low defaults for the reasons we've discussed. 
And that is very much set to change because, frankly, too much leverage was put on companies. Many of those companies will be able to work um, through the challenges within their capital structure um, because a couple of reasons. Number one, um, when these deals have been done in the last few years, generally um, they've been done with a fair amount of uh, runway to maturity. So it gives time for companies to grow into their capital structure. The second reason is companies had very high interest coverage to start with going into the transactions. And therefore, while interest rates have risen and it puts an additional burden on, on, these, on, on their cash flow, many of them still can afford the higher interest cost. And then, and then finally, a lot of the PE deals um, have been done with a buy and build type strategy and operational improvements. And they've been structured with very large liquidity facilities or revolving credit facilities. And because they've got these facilities, if we go through a period of you know, slower growth or recession, um, again, these companies will have the liquidity to, to ride that through. There are some maturities which are in the nearer term. So it's picking out those companies which will reach those maturities still with very high leverage and where, where they'll find refinancing you know, a challenge. But I think on, on the flip side, because of the presence of alternative forms of credit in the private credit space, whether it be special sits, direct lenders, a lot of these companies will find innovative solutions um, to put, you know, junior capital in place to help provide more optionality and an extension of those facilities. So I think the default rate won't be as high as perhaps people will think. But what we will see is more stress in the market. You mean you could see it increase. You could see it theoretically double from historical rates, at least in direct lending. The, you know, the last couple decades, the default rate in direct lending has been 2% or less. And I think there's a fair bet that it'll go up from there. And if you look at the GFC, it went up significantly from there, but it's very temporary. It's kind of an 18-month period. And I think it's I think you peel back the onion and what, what companies need is growth. They need to grow revenues. If you can't dedicate cash flow to growth, you can't increase your enterprise value. And if you're taking away cash flow and putting it towards interest, which is the current environment where rates are at 4% plus just on the base rate plus spread, they have to dedicate more of the cash flow to that. And so they can't grow. And so eventually in the cycle as the wheels turn, enterprise value, equity valuations are probably going to have to come down. And partially that will be because of us. That will be because of the debt providers will provide less debt. We won't be at the same multiples we were when we're looking at financings. Uh, but it'll also just be because they're not be able, able to commit as much cash flow to growth. And so this is part of, I think, I wouldn't call it the great reset because it's probably not that great of a reset, but it's a... Uh, it's the, it's the private credit reset. Camille, can I just ask you about um, the defaults? If, as Mark describes, they're going to rise, um, then what does it mean for recoveries for you? So if you take defaults, I think, as Michael said, we expect defaults in the market to approach um, levels which we, we see in line with the long run average. So we've been in an abnormal period. and Now we're seeing default rates moving towards what we think are more typical for, for a normalized period. In terms of uh, recovery rates, um, I'd spoke before about the changes in documentation, and that's something we're, we're keeping a, a close eye on. I think one of the interesting things we're seeing is the difference between the US and Europe. Documentation protection within the uh, European leveraged loan market is a bit tighter than the US, and that means that some of the priming, up-tier priming transactions that we've seen in the US 
are, are, are harder to achieve in Europe. That's not to say they won't find a way to, to replicate what we see in the US, but it's harder to do at the moment. Europe's also a more clubby and smaller market. So the relationship, as Mark alluded to, with private equity sponsors and lenders is a lot, a lot closer than the US. And so, so far, the level of detrimental behavior that we've seen in the US hasn't been replicated in, in Europe. So even though we're seeing um, recovery rates in the US leveraged loan market that are, are very low, we're not seeing that entirely replicated in Europe. We do have some documentation looseness that's come from this vintage, so we do expect maybe um, recovery rates to be a bit lower than the long run average, um, but not to the extent that we're seeing in the US market. Interesting. Now, these short term shifts are happening at the same time as what could be some pretty fundamental changes in the world of finance. There have been some very big casualties in the banking sector, of course, um, in the US and uh, in Europe. And banks are withdrawing from parts of the loan market. They're reducing their loan books. Uh, regulatory requirements on them are tightening. What, what does that mean for private credit, Mark? The demise of Silicon Valley Bank definitely had a big effect on the US market. I am close to some shops out there that had big relationships with them. There was a bit of a vacuum and people were able to come in and fill that vacuum. Uh, the other several that have kind of come down the pike and failed have not been as dramatic because they weren't doing as much corporate lending. So there's a vacuum. We haven't seen it here so much. And you haven't, I, well, I, I think that the reason we haven't seen it so much here is because there's stricter rev regulation in Europe than there is in the US. Uh, but again, in Europe, I think the bank retrenchment story is interesting. And there always is a story. And I think it ebbs and flows across decades. We have not seen as much bank retrenchment as we would have thought at this point, uh, but we do think it's coming down the pike with greater regulation and really just everybody being a bit more circumspect about how they deploy capital based on all of the things we're talking about, whether it's war in Europe, high interest rates, monetary tightening, so remaining still supply chain issues. Uh, I think they're, they're, we're all following the same trend. We're all coming back on how we think about deploying and we're all deploying a little more cautiously. You've drawn a distinction, Mark, there between the US and Europe, but is it uniform across Europe? Because um, I know in Germany, um, companies, particularly SMEs, rely very heavily on banks. Um, but is that the same in other European countries? Yes, no, it's exactly right. I, and I do think it does differ from country to country. There is a huge group of middle shot companies in Germany that rely on local banks. Uh, Another interesting development across the last decade is that direct lenders have made headway in regional markets, in Germany, in France, to some extent in Italy, and, and certainly pretty dramatically in Benelux. Uh, whereas 10 years ago, direct lending was a bit unheard of and people were nervous about it. Now it's a very standard offering and it's in most bids, people will consider it. But the regulation is different from place to place. And that's part of what you have to be conscious of, not actually to go off on a tangent, but not actually because of the banks themselves, but just because of how regulation is written. Michael, how significant is you know what we're hearing now? How significant is it within the context of the broader market? Is this just a temporary um, issue while bank confidence recovers, or is this um, you know a more uh, full blown redrawing redrawing of the corporate lending landscape? Look, I I think the the impact of the the U.S. regional banking crisis is is much longer term. What happened with SVB and the fallout only accelerates what we're already starting to see. And while I think it's largely a US phenomenon, um, it's, it's likely to be uh, really 
impacting the long-term banking business model. Um, the reason I say that is because, you know, in the U.S., regional banks are a considerable provider of finance for the U.S. economy. Around half of, you know, company finance, real estate finance is provided by regional banks. But I think the important point, again, is what is the business of banks, you know, borrowing from depositors on very short term and then, you know, lending to companies and to real estate on a very long term basis. And with the, you know, mobile banking uh, evolution over the last several years, which is only going to accelerate even more, the risk of bank deposits being pulled out at a whim has to be now factored in much more seriously to the US banking model and, and, and European banking model going forward. We're going to um, take the conversation into a slightly different tack now. The relationships in this lending is, is different to, um, to public lending, of course, and the way that the companies share their information and data is different. And that means the processes that Fidelity's analysts have to follow can be different as well, especially when it comes to sustainability, as my colleague Nina Flipman has been exploring. Private credit might not be the first thing that comes to mind when you think about ESG. Lots of issuers in this market can be smaller, sometimes they can be emerging from family ownership. And so they just may not be as transparent about their emissions and processes, and sometimes there's just less publicly available data that we can use for analysis. Uh, I'm catching up with Oliver Newman, a senior analyst and ESG champion on our private credit team. And we've come out to the churchyard of St Paul's Cathedral, just outside the Fidelity office. Ollie, have I given a fair assessment of the market there? I think you've given a very fair assessment of the market. The public market has been doing ESG for many years, so there's a wealth of data available for public market companies. It's not the same in private markets. They're private, they don't have to disclose, and ESG hasn't really been a thing in private markets, and we've seen it come in the last few years, uh, and the, the big difference is data. There's not as much data available in private markets versus public. So that data gap is really a pressure point in the market. How, how are we addressing that? How are we dealing with that? Through engagement with our issuers, so we're reaching out to them and asking them for the information um, and we're doing that both individually as a firm and collaboratively uh, as an industry through ELFA. Which is the European Leveraged Finance Association. Yes, yeah. exactly. So we're, they have a standardised questionnaire based on sector and we reach out to issuers with that questionnaire and we see quite a good response rate on, that, on the data coming back. And what sort of proxies can we use where there is really no data available and maybe the borrowers are a little bit slower in responding to that education? So we can take public companies for a start as a proxy, but then there's also other institutions like PCAF that publish uh, carbon emissions uh, data that we can use and leverage for our issuers and help us, help us proxy their carbon emissions. So what insights are we getting from that data? How can we compare, for example, the leverage loan market with other markets such as maybe higher bonds? So we're seeing from our initial analysis of the leverage loan index, 
uh, that our data compares favorably to the European High Yield Index, and that's largely because of the sectors that they're weighted towards. So the European High Yield is more heavily weighted towards energy and more manufacturing intensive businesses, whereas Leverage Loan Index is more heavily weighted towards servicing companies, software, and less carbon intensive industries. Presumably that doesn't mean it's all rosy in private markets. We've already talked about how we're educating borrowers, but what about how we're engaging with them? What's the key difference between how engagement works in the private markets compared to the public markets? In the public markets, your main tool is through voting down resolutions in in shareholder meetings. For private markets, we don't have that leverage, uh, but we do have leverage over the owners, the sponsors, and education is key. So we need to educate the companies and the sponsors that, you know, ESG might be new for you, but for various reasons, it's going to help improve your access to capital uh, if you need any additional. It's going to improve your enterprise value. Uh, because everybody wants this information, your stakeholders, your customers, and your next providers of capital. Because we often find that names in this market are already doing the right things. They're just not very good in being open about how they're doing the right things. And, and that's that transparency that's key. Absolutely. Transparency is everything. You talked about that closer relationship that we're able to have in the, in the private markets and in direct lending. It goes almost a step further. I mean, we've heard about how a direct lender because of the close relationship, might even have a CEO or CFO's phone number, which they can really directly uh, engage with the companies. Yeah, no, absolutely. In direct lending, I think that's the biggest asset class where you're going to have the best opportunities to engage because uh, versus a, an equity or a syndicated loan transaction where you might represent a tiny percentage of the capital structure. In direct lending, you effectively are the capital structure. So you've got the biggest in with the management teams and with the companies themselves. Ollie, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I'll let you get back to it. Thank you. That's Ollie Newman speaking to Nina Flitman earlier. Now, Mark, um, Ollie was talking there about the relationships that exist in the direct lending world. What's been your experience of working with CEOs and CFOs of these smaller and mid-sized companies, especially when it comes to their approach uh, to sustainable investing, to ESG? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's an exciting prospect, actually. And, and I would make the point that one of the interesting things about direct lending is you are close with the executive management. You are often sitting across the table from the CEO and the CFO and the board, you know, you know because you're a partner. You're the primary capital provider. You're a bilateral lender. And your uh, partnership is pretty key and critical to them being a successful endeavor and growing their company and, and building it to something that they can sell at a later date. So we're, we're in an interesting position. Again, sitting in the room, having conversations. I'm always actually pleasantly surprised by how much these CEOs and CFOs, and these companies might have 50 million of revenue, for example, so not, not of great scale. But I'm always surprised and pleasantly so how much they focus on ESG and how interested they are in the subject. Fascinating. And uh, a topic we can't escape, can we? Now, um, Michael, there's been an awful lot of discussion about the death of the traditional 60-40 portfolio. We've touched in this conversation on how segments of the private credit market compare to the public bond market. How should investors be thinking about this asset class in their own portfolios? 60-40's been long regarded as you know, how a portfolio should look between equities and bonds. And I think that's been very true, especially for 
you know, the average wealth or retail investor. Uh, increasingly, and I'm talking about the last 10, 15 years, institutions have deviated from 60-40 and um, started to use alternatives as part of their asset allocation. So private equity, for example, hedge funds and uh, you know, real assets have been an increasing allocation for institutions, but haven't really made their way down uh, beyond beyond that institutional reach. So I think what we're likely to see is that continued shift. And if anything, it's going to accelerate um, because, you know, what private assets and, and alternatives can do for portfolios is is very interesting. I don't think it's because private's better than public. It's because the asset class is structurally set up to achieve those outcomes. Um, because they're long-term vehicles um, without the need to provide liquidity on a daily basis, you can invest with that long-term in mind without fear that someone's going to need their capital back the next day or you know, without fear that someone's going to you know, redeem from a fund in times of in times of you know higher volatility and then exit at the wrong time in the market. I think the final point I'd make is if you're an investor, whether institutional wealth or retail, you know, you want diversified portfolios. And and if you only focus on the public markets, you're taking a very narrow subset of global global GDP. So increasingly I think private assets allow people to have a very diversified approach. Uh, re reflecting more what global D GDP looks like, and that will be, you know, public companies, private companies, wider geographic reach, but also, you know, real assets like real estate infrastructure and, and then private credit. Can I bring Camille in here? Because um, you work on leverage loans. And what would you say to um, investors who've been listening to this conversation who might be thinking of diversifying into that area? Currently, people are talking about um, leverage loaned versus, uh, let's say, high yield because it's more closely akin. Um, convexity, which you have on the high yield side, versus current income, which you have on the leverage loan side. And, and convexity just means that um, because as rates have risen, those fixed coupons stay the same, but prices have had to, to fall. So if you look at the high yield market now, you have lower prices. So people want to make sure that they don't miss out because if rates change, then that could be a strong driver in terms of those prices um, ri rising, so reversing the trend that I've just spoken about. I think it's not as it's not as clear cut as that because high yield can often be quite correlated to equities. So if there's a change in the rate policy, it's it's likely because we're facing a more challenging economic environment, and if we see equities sell off and risk assets sell off, that could also way on high yield as well. We think having a portfolio that combines high yield and leverage loans could be quite interesting for investors to, to think about. So if you have high yield, you have that um, opportunity. If prices do rally on the high yield side, you don't miss out. But also leverage loans mean that if if rates do rise from here and we're, we're not at, at final terminal rates, then your income increases. And also your current income now um, is higher. We've actually carried out a piece of work looking at how leveraged loans have behaved and um, public IG and high yield markets have behaved post previous Fed pivots. And actually, leveraged loans are the least volatile. You wouldn't say it's an either or choice, high yield or syndicated loans. Is it an either or choice or is it a both and allocated? I think it makes, I think it could be interesting to have both. So 
if you have a high yield allocation alongside with a leveraged loan allocation, again, it's hard to time the pivot. And for the reasons that I've said, it's hard to know when those high yield bonds will rally, rally back. But if you have a high yield allocation, you, you make sure that you don't miss out on that rally back. But also by having an inclusion of leveraged loans, it also provides <coughs> some protection against higher rates for longer or rates reaching further from here. And then on, on the downside, you've got potentially less volatility. And that's the floating rate element on this. The city. floating oh, rate okay. element. Okay, interesting. Which could also play out for direct lending, sure. but no, you haven't got that it, liquidity. Because no, we've got to that then. in common. Yeah, yeah, we've got that in common. Thank you very much indeed. Um, that's all the time we have, I'm afraid. So thanks to Michael, Camille and Mark for joining me and to Ollie Newman as well. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, then please do like, share and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can read more of our private markets coverage, including that white paper on the nuances of the direct lending market at your local Fidelity website or at fidelityinternational.com. The producers today were Holly Eastman, Nina Flitman and Seb Morton-Clark with technical support in the studio and on occasion from Connor Bailey and Callum Blitz. But from all of us at Fidelity for now, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied upon by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without the prior permission of Fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please visit your local Fidelity website.